This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Um, <clears throat> to be completely transparent, um, just as we were taking our short break, I made a nice hot cup of tea and promptly dumped it right and straight into the top of my computer. Um, <laughs> So, so I'm speaking to you now from my iPad because my computer is making a very sad, whiny kind of noise um, that I suspect means my several months desire to get a new one won't be taking place sometime soon. But there we are. But um, what I wanted to talk about today was um, suffering um, as my computer is now suffering and, and uh, my nerves are suffering because um, of, of, uh, of that little human thing that happened. So. I think in my experience of Buddhist practice, we talk a lot about suffering, um, uh, physical pain, emotional pain, <clears throat> what I refer to as psycho-spiritual pain. And I think that, you know, for myself and for us as humans, um, we require connections, love, intimacy, some sense of safety, um, and importantly, some sense of um, purpose. Uh, in his book, Instructions to the Cook, Bernie Glassman, um, reflecting on Dogen's fascicle, says that he refers to this as having a life that matters. And so Bernie, of course, instructs us um, to create one. If we don't have a life that matters, it's really simple, Bernie says, do something about it. Um, and, uh, and so I've been thinking about that um, in terms of what causes suffering um, for us generally and what causes suffering for me and other people that I know is, is really sort of boils down to that. Do we have that sense of um, safety, a uh, sense of intimacy and, and, and love, sense of connection, and a sense of safety. And so of course, in the best of times, um, those are challenges on a day-to-day basis for any of us that encounters other human beings as we, as we go through our day. Um, but you know, as we've been living in quarantine, um, I think many of us have had a certain really um, new levels of dis-ease, you know, uncomfortableness, that, that steady uncomfortableness. And, and that, um, you know, I think it, it, um, we've just had to find new ways, new ways to work with that. Um, and I think the lack of, of having that sense of ease and safety and comfort is originally what brought many of us to the door of a Zen Center um, and what keeps some of us here on a day-to-day um, or as needed basis. Um, the, the, the things that are happening in our lives um, generally and, of course, right now. So I'm, I'm moved to remember the teaching of the Buddha that um, says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the cessation of suffering. And so, of course, as those wise as me know, that there's some great debate about whether the Buddha actually ever said that. Um, but, but given what we know, um, and we heard a little bit last week that, you know, the Buddha's um, words were... Um, mouth to mouth um, for 400 years or so, and then another 100 years being written down, and, and then they were edited by group. So um, I'm not sure whether the Buddha actually said, I come to teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the cessation of suffering. Um, but because we don't have any proof that he didn't say it, um, I'm going to go today with, with that he did. So, you know, during these um, last 15 months of, of uh, mandated isolation and solitude, uh, most of us have spent plenty of time thinking about um, exactly how we lived 
our, our lives, our relational lives, um, before March of 2020. Um, some of us have spent some time thinking about what was happening to our lives, especially our relational lives, um, during this quarantine. Um, and then recently, um, what will it be like to make our relational lives um, um, fuller, bigger somehow after quarantine? Um, and most of us, you know, that felt a little casual because we've heard a lot of people talk about, well, the end of this year or late fall or something or 2021. Um, and we assume we have lots of time to get our act together. Um, but um, I got a note from, uh, for, in my status with meditation and recovery, I got a note from the Zen Center um, Thursday of this week saying they're opening the conference center. So if we wanted to book our room, we could, we could book a room. Um, and that was the same day that the CDC said um, that we may all, um, those who have been vaccinated uh, properly, uh, run back into the streets maskless um, at our choosing. Um, and I think the political message there was somehow supposed to be a joy-filled message, but everyone I've talked to since that message came out, and it may be the kind of people I associate with, um, have really responded to that idea of, okay, starting whenever it is today or next Monday, um, we can be maskless. Um, and, and so that's one concern, um, just like, oh, no, okay, we're, here we are faced with this opportunity um, to end, to quarantine, at least as we know it, to be over with. Um, and of course, um, that, that creates more suffering, trying to figure out what we'll do with that um, as individuals, as families, as sanghas, as residents and non-residents of, of a Zen center. Um, and then there's the other piece of that, that as I say, I think that most of life is <laughs> relational and that's how we need to, to look at it. And so we think about um, or I've been thinking about the last few days, all of those people that I've thought about seeing for the last 15 months, but couldn't because they or I were in quarantine or were at a distance that made that not possible. Um, and then I thought about all the people um, that I have enjoyed not engaging with um, and being able to use the quarantine <laughs> as the excuse. <laughs> Could, couldn't possibly come there. Um, it's not possible. Um, and, you know, some of those are immediate family members and, and good friends, but but the quarantine gave us an opportunity to sit and hopefully reflect on, on how we wanna show up in our own lives and other people's lives and how we want them to show up, um, uh, you know, based on our own, our own needs and desires and um, our sense of boundaries and, and sometimes based on a deep sense of responsibility to others and sometimes based on something called codependency. Um, I'll show up places because, you know, you think you should. Uh, but this concept of suffering and, and what does suffering mean has really uh, been on my mind as we think about our own lives, our own spiritual, my own life, my own spiritual practice and, and uh, the world in which we live. So Philip Moffat, the writer, says that um, in Buddhism, living beings are trapped in a cycle of existence known as samsara. samsara uh, in samsara, we wander aimlessly um, and experience unbearable suffering day and night, year after year, life after life. And, and so that sounds like, hmm, that's a really a cheery concept. And certainly people would want to rush to the door of the Zendo to sign up for that. Um, but he goes on to say that in order to heal this disease-like condition, first we have to find its cause and then apply a medicine-like path of training to restore our original good health, which is enlightenment. And that's one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism in the first place was the, was the conversation, the teachings, the hope 
of um, returning to original life. Um, as the Buddha talked about the innate nobility of all beings, that, that in our authentic selves, um, we have the capacity to, to um, be people of love and to love others and to be loved by others. Um, we have the capacity to have good boundaries um, that are strong, but not, not off-putting um, and in which we can take care of ourselves and, and um, be, pre- be fully present um, for others. So those words of, of uh, Phillips came from an article in Lions Roar last year where nine teachers talked about um, their views of suffering. And as I thought about it, um, and I, you know, if you can dig out that old issue, it was uh, April of last 2020, and there's nine different folks. But one of the things that keeps showing up in those articles, which is, um, which is uh, something that I try every day to embrace, and sometimes successfully and sometimes not, is that each of the teachers um, that writes in there, at some point in their, in their particular article, talks about um, that suffering isn't a condemnation, but suffering is, is two things. One is uh, dealing with reality and reality not being what we might want it to be or what it used to be. Um, and, and so we have, we have that part of suffering, but it's also a joyous opportunity. And so that really um, intrigued me and, and, and led me to thinking, it's like, hmm, suffering is a joyous opportunity. Um, and as I thought back on the many years that I've been practicing uh, Buddhism and, and, and Zen particularly, I thought, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, that is exactly um, why I came to this practice um, and why I've stayed in this practice is, is that opportunity. So suffering as a joyous opportunity is, um, is what I've been thinking about, um, about the last few days and, and few weeks. Um, you know, let me just say that like most of us, um, I do not enjoy suffering or pain. Um, I spent much of my life trying to escape having to, to deal with any suffering or pain, um, not always skillfully um, moving through it or past it or working with it, but oftentimes um, in my earlier life, I'm trying to drink it away, um, drug it away um, for many, many years, I'm trying to keep just as busy as possible, um, sometimes still a curse, um, so that I could be distracted from the feelings of pain and suffering. Um, and, you know, uh, like many of us who grew up when I did, and you can uh, place yourself on that spectrum, um, having lots and lots of relationships, um, um, which is a very nice word for what I was actually having in the 70s and 80s, um, uh, <laughs> because they didn't last long enough to spell the word relationship. Um, but using other people um, uh, also to distract myself from the realities of my life, the, both the suffering and the joy. So as I was reading that article, Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, the Buddha called suffering the holy truth, the holy truth. And he says this is because uh, suffering um, has the capacity to show us the path to liberation. Experiencing and knowing this truth, he says, gives our lives wholeness and peace and frees us from the exhausting posture of pretense and denial. And those words really, really resonated with me. The, the idea that um, and I don't know if any of you can relate, but for years when anybody would say, how are you? I would say, fine. Um, and the louder and more gregariously I said that, the less true it was oftentimes. Um, and so, you know, what I recognize is that I had, and many of you, maybe all of us have a tendency to run away from suffering. Um, and then there's another teaching um, by Thich Nhat Hanh in that article where he says that um, 
The fact is, without suffering, there is no way to cultivate understanding and compassion. And without understanding and compassion, there is no way to find happiness. So sometimes it seems to me that what the gift, you know, this joyous opportunity of suffering is to say, hmm, okay, if I take a look at it, I'm feeling um, really um, uncomfortable. I have dis-ease today and, and what's going on. Um, I know I'm suffering. You know, I know I'm feeling um, grief or I'm feeling sorrow or I'm feeling anger or frustration. And, and so, okay, you know, I, can, I could medicate that or get busy and not notice it or do any of the other number of things that I mentioned. Um, or I could sit in practice um, and say, hmm, let me think about what is causing that. What is causing that might be something that I generated. It might be the conditions of the world or my apartment currently covered um, in ginger tea. Um, could be any number of things. Um, and it could be my response to those. And so what we get to do, um, the opportunity with suffering is to really sort of take a backward step and say, hmm, okay, what is it that I'm really upset about? Um, what I'm set, upset about often um, for me, and I don't know about for you, is that I have some notion that I have some control over my life and how, it, how it's unfolding and how it will unfold. Um, and, you know, the fact is I don't generally have control over things. You know, I can, I can try to do the next right thing. I can try to be thoughtful. I can certainly try to slow down a lot and, and get a better look at what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, sometimes the cup of tea just tips over. Sometimes the uh, quarantine rules just go get suspended and everybody's free to do um, what they please. And I know that's not entirely true, but it's the way some people have been hearing it. But, you know, this, this suffering, this, the word in Pali is dukkha. And, and we think of it as suffering. Um, but the more I was reading about it in the last few weeks, the more I find that it's a range um, of, of experiences from happiness to despair. Um, and so for me, that was sort of interesting that, that happiness gets included in dukkha. And then I thought about the times in my life when I've been most happy, um, you know, being with a close friend, um, maybe being in Paris or in Galway, you know, the times when I've been really happy. And I think back on those times and think, hmm, I did spend some of that time. And I don't know if any of you experienced this when you go on a nice vacation trip and you've been there for two days out of the 10 that you're going to be there and you start thinking about having to go home. <laughs> vacation will end and I must repack that suitcase somehow. And, you know, and, and just those little ways that the mind can, my mind can begin to spin and say, even though I'm walking on Galway Bay, um, I'm already thinking about um, some stack of papers that I have to grade when I get back, um, back to my, my desk at home. So I think, I think that there's this opportunity to take a look at that and say, okay, so how can we use practice um, to, to pause, to bring some spaciousness um, uh, to, to the way my mind works, to the way our minds work? Um, and so I remember back to when I first found my way to Buddhism, um, ill-advisedly going on a four-day silent retreat in a monastery um, as my first experience. Um, and I was able to, during the course of those four days, arouse a couple of moments of what I now know to be authentic self. Um, I had a tiny sense of the kind of person um, that I could be. 
um, the kind of person that I wanted to be. And then a couple of seconds of realizing that when I wasn't busy at that time dealing with active alcoholism and addiction and um, active suffering based on uh, a career that I wasn't quite sure about and, and a relationship that had just ended, um, that before I got tangled up in all that reality stuff, um, the kind of person I wanted to be actually was the kind of person that I had been at some other points in my life. Um, and so in those moments, it was like, hmm, okay, so here's this idea of suffering um, and the idea of the cessation of suffering. And so it was everything I needed. And of course, we hear it in teachings. Um, I had um, right inside of me. In that um, article I was telling you about, Sharon Salzberg is one of the writers, and she tells a wonderful story about a mom who was um, talking to her four-year-old child. And she's telling the four-year-old child that um, your nanny, the person that's cared for you for the last several years, um, um, is having to move away. She has a sick person in her family, and she has to go back to where she came from. Um, doesn't mean she doesn't love you. She's not abandoning you, um, but she will be gone starting tomorrow. And the little four-year-old boy looks up to his mom and gives her a little hug and says, okay, mom, so that's good. So now tell me that story, but with a different ending, but with a different ending. <laughs> and, and I realized that for a lot of my life, um, and, and, you know, perhaps you can identify with that as well. Um, I wanted a different ending. You know, I had this feeling of unsatisfactoriness or um, not sure I had a life that mattered. Um, and, and so I wanted a different ending. And, you know, that added to the suffering because that's what I did to sit around and stew about how I wish things were different. I wish the, the cards I were dealt had been dealt were different cards. Um, and, you know, and so I was dealing with that. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is that what I was learning through these teachings, you know, over the, my time in practice is that I can have a different ending to the story. Um, and the different ending to the story doesn't mean it'll be the one exactly that, that I want, um, but it does mean that I have the capacity through deepening my practice and through spending more time, um, you know, on the cushion or the chair in my case, um, and, and deepening my practice and really reflecting on sort of who and what I have become and what kind of person that I would like to be um, and probably was at one point. And so it's a matter of getting back, um, um, getting back to that authentic original self. So, you know, all of that requires change. Um, and there's a famous um, old saying around it's, uh, in my family and other Irish families, and I've heard it in recovery and other places. And it says, there are two things that human beings hate the most, things exactly as they are and change. And so, so I found myself um, really in that experience of, okay, so, you know, things are okay most days, some days a little sad, some days frustrating and angering, but by and large, okay, just okay. Um, but I would like things to be delightful and joyful every day. Um, and, you know, that's, um, there are ways to engage um, joyfulness and delight as we're taught in our practice. And one of those ways, um, frankly, is to realize that suffering is part of our life um, and that, um, you know, this, the, the suffering that we have, um, whether it's psycho-spiritual or emotional or physical suffering, um, is all real. And um, we notice, I think, that in the best of times, and certainly in the last 15 months, that things don't always go exactly the way we want them to. But 
the response to those things is up to me. That's the part I get to change. You know, I'm not the only one that was in quarantine. So on those days when I was just full of, of piss and vinegar about how awful my life was, um, I got a chance to say, hmm, there are other folks that are experiencing this too. So I think it's that opportunity to express, um, to accept um, and my suffering and to accept and examine that suffering that really um, gives me this beautiful opportunity. Um, you know, as human beings, we're meaning, meaning makers and we want things to make sense. And so we assign meanings to them. And, you know, that meaning can come from inside me or that meaning can come from a shared conversation, experience, teaching um, with others, um, friends and family, people in the Sangha, um, a Buddhist teacher or teachers, many of them, if we have access. Um, and that this opportunity um, to take a look at what does this mean? Does it have to mean suffering or can it mean um, this is the place, the platform from which we are now operating and how do we maximize um, our, our experience in terms of a life that matters, in terms of being present for ourselves, in terms of being present for each other. So this meaning may come from within um, or it may come you know, for some people from a higher power or it may come from um, uh, our spiritual practice and our practice of Sangha, which is what I believe. And this meaning um, provides us hope and certainty that might otherwise have been um, lost. And so for me, it seems like there's really, um, I can stop working so hard to assign meaning to everything. Um, some things just happen. Um, there's a word, a 25 cent word that I'm gonna give you that you probably all know. I just found out about it this week. It's called eschatology. Um, and it basically means the ultimate meaning of something, um, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. So you probably all know it, but, but somehow in my Detroit upbringing, we didn't used to say that word a lot. So it's this idea of, of um, the ultimate meaning of something. And there was a beautiful article um, uh, about Buddhist eschatology um, that said um, that for, in Buddhism, um, what is the ultimate meaning, right? What is the ultimate meaning? And it used this expression, which I really love. Does a rose have to do something? No, the purpose of a rose is to be a rose. So we do not have to, as individuals, run somewhere to become somebody else. Our purpose is to be us. And our practice is to find out who that me or who that you, who that us really are. Um, wonderful just as we are. Um, and that includes both suffering and delight. Um, and so I think that's, that's just this really wonderful opportunity um, that if we embrace the non-duality, that we will always have suffering um, and possibly always have joy as well. And the idea isn't to get rid of one of those or really or struggle and run to achieve the other one. Um, the idea is to find some balance, accepting that life in, contains both, um, trying to find some balance. So, um, we know that like, we can't change the end of the story as, as that mother was talking about with her son. But what we know is that we can figure out the key elements of the story and which ones we can live with and which ones we can um, work to um, make different. So the whole story isn't, isn't mine to change, but how I relate to the story and how I show up in the story um, can be mine um, to change. <clears throat> Last night, I heard a wonderful share from somebody talking uh, about uh, referencing 
um, Charlotte Joko Beck's book, Everyday Zen, and her teaching in that book that one of the things that we should be doing as part of our practice is looking for a bigger container. And she teaches um, uh, about that, and in, in, uh, she, she taught, I should say, about that um, frequently. But the teaching, I think, is really quite beautiful. So she talks first about, you know, taking that backward step and looking at, at the things that are going on in your life, the things that you resent, the things that you enjoy, um, the things that are causing you suffering, the things that are bringing, bringing you happiness or delight, um, and to recognize the paradox that both of those things exist always. And as the Buddha taught, we wouldn't have um, the capacity for delight and joy if we didn't have the, the reality of suffering, because it's through the one that we see the other and through the other that we see the first. And, and what a wonderful um, idea that is, that we are informed and held by both of those things, and that one without the other um, would be a shallow and somewhat empty life. So I think um, this idea of finding a container big enough for my joy and my sorrow, big enough for the things I think I know, and the things I discover on a regular basis that I don't know and don't need to know. Um, I think that that is really a wonderful concept, this idea of finding a container big enough to hold it all. Um, and, and it's just what a great idea that instead of spending many years of my life trying to run away from things I didn't like or trying to distract myself from things that didn't feel good or trying to you know outrun the suffering that everybody in life, including me, experiences, um, to just find a container that feels safe, that feels holding, um, that feels um, uh, next to and held by other people, um, and in that container to allow myself to have that range of experience. So to create a container that's big enough for all of my parts, all of my experiences, and all of my uh, psychosocial, uh, psychospiritual um, realities. So that seems to me really important. Sharon Salzberg says the most important thing her teacher said to her was that every time she went to him to complain, um, he would listen to her for a while and then he would say, hmm, that's dukkha, isn't it? This is dukkha, isn't it? And that, you know, suffering is part of our lives. And an important teaching is um, just to say, yep, it is, as is joy and delight. And we get to try and figure out a way to balance those. Last week, um, uh, Reverend Mio talked to us about um, Mingyur Rinpoche's teachings of the three kinds of knowledge, the wisdom that's based on hearing. Um, as we hear a talk, or we, or I read um, last night, the talk was so good that I heard that I went and, um, and got uh, uh, Joe jo Kobeck's book off the shelf and read it last night as, as I was going to sleep. Um, and so that's the talk of hearing, uh, the wisdom of hearing. And there's, there's the wisdom based on reflection. Um, which is my opportunity today to, to really think about um, creating a container big enough um, for me to, um, to hold everything, all the parts of me, and for you each to find a container big enough that when you take the backward step and look at all of your parts and all of your joys and sorrows, um, um, you know, you have that opportunity to hold them someplace safe and held and filled with love. And then the third piece, um, as I understand it, is the wisdom of meditative cultivation. The teaching um, has entered the deepest level at this point of my practice. Um, and I really get a chance to experience and to know the teaching, to know those words. Um, and it begins to express itself um, in, my, in my life and in the way I live and in the way my Sangha lives. 
sanghas live. Um, and then to remember as the Buddha teaches that um, the teaching is into the deepest level of my practice and that all of my life is my practice, not just the very important half hour I spend on, on the cushion every day um, or um, in the chair, because I'm too old for a cushion, but um, not that half hour, but all of it on the chair, in meditation, and in the rest of life. And so I think that it's this wonderful opportunity to really, um, you know, when I thought about giving a talk and having us spend some time thinking about and talking about suffering, I thought, well, that's not going to be very much fun. And the more I read, the more I didn't um, immediately jump to some sort of delight, um, but I did come to a place of just a real sense of ease and peace that mm -hmm, there is suffering. And, you know, there's always going to be suffering and there's the possibility and reality of joy. And there's always going to be that. Um, and if I don't push one away and chase after the other one, um, uh, and, and I, in times in my life, I've done both. I've sometimes seem seemingly chased after suffering because I certainly found it. Um, and so I get that opportunity. And so as I was thinking about this, um, I want to share a poem with you just as I close that that really, you know, we've had the last 15 months, but we've also had our whole lives, you know, our whole practice and our whole lives um, to take a look at, at these concepts and to think about how we're going to balance suffering and, and happiness of suffering and joy. And this is a poem um, that was written by someone named Carolyn Kaufman. And she says, well, you made it. You survived. The unbearable weight is suddenly lifted. The endless night has broken into dawn. The uphill battle led you to a peak, and now you stand tall at the summit. So now what? What do you do next? There is now air to breathe and room to grow, and time to fill that you did not plan for. You did not plan on having this life worth living, and suddenly here it is. So now what? How will you make the most of it? How will you live the life that you might never have thought you'd get a chance to see again? And so as we come out of um, 15 months of quarantine into some many months of who knows what, um, as we come off our uh, meditation um, uh, seats today and walk through the rest of our lives, as we figure out how to um, be back together with each other um, in person, um, but very importantly, um, celebrate how we have um, uh, not been socially distant. We have been spiritually connected in an amazing way through these Saturday sessions and the other things that happen at Hartford Street. Um, and so we don't have to run wildly into the street as though we hadn't had any human connection or spiritual connection. We get to say, hmm, we found a new way to be really connected, to communicate with each other and to hold each other. And isn't that wonderful? And so as we um, do whatever it is we're going to do next, um, we get that opportunity to say, hmm, so what now? How will we lead these lives that we've been given? Thank you. Thank you, Koshin San. Do we have time for questions, maybe? Questions and comments, please just uh, unmute yourself. Kato San. Can I, I just want to ask about that term, again, that word. We didn't have 25 cent words in the mountains of Colorado either. So what was that like ultimate meaning or highest meaning or what was that again? You're on mute. Um, I'll, I'll send you the connections, eschatology. 
Um, and, and I found a nice um, article about it. Um, I've got a few lines about it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, about Buddhist eschatology. So I can, I can, uh, I don't have it right in front of me. Um, take because, a look at the detail, but it makes me nervous. The yeah. 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 Really nervous. <laughs> right. Me, me too. Me too. And, and I think the point of the teaching is that we don't have to do it. It's like that we don't have to look for some ultimate meaning that, um, that we have this opportunity to be present in this moment um, and to stop um, chasing around, trying to make meaning out of everything and just really live the experience. Great, thank you. Just hear words like that and I think of religion and I get scared. Right, well, that's when, when you look that word up on Google, the first thing that pops up is Catholic eschatology, Christian eschatology. I was like, okay, okay. So I'm happy that Sharon Salzberg used that word. I will never use it again. <laughs> but yeah. but well, turns but, out, turns out there's some there's some opportunities to think about it. Yeah, bingo. I thought so. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you. Okay, son. Okay, Stephen. Thank. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. I had a question, you know, especially because you're a psychologist about, I guess the word would be caretaking others. And I, I asked this because, you know, in this weird transition, I'm fully vaccinated. So I've been like, okay, I'm going to walk the trails around here without a mask, but then people look at me funny. And I feel like, is it just easier to put on a mask to, to try to take care of others? Or should we actually just try to push through and do what we're, we're said? I don't know. That's sort of my question. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's that this this whole mask thing, especially right now, um, is is such a wonderful opportunity for us to think about how we show up in the world. Um, am I wearing a mask to protect myself? Um, am I wearing a mask to protect others? And you know, now in theory, um, uh, you know, now in theory, we have this opportunity to um, uh, to to be told by the government that you don't have to wear it to protect others. So if you're wearing it, it might just be because you're nervous. And it's like, wait a minute, I had all figured out that I was going to keep wearing a mask forever because I wanted to take care of everybody else. And aren't I the most compassionate, thoughtful person? Um, but you get to take that backward step and say, okay, so what is my motivation um, for wearing the mask? Um, and, and on the other side, as you say, what's my motivation for taking it off? It's like, you know, part of us, part of me, I won't speak for you, part of us like, oh, thank God, get this thing off. And, you know, people stop telling me what I have to do. And, um, you know, and then I go down a rabbit hole of it. I couldn't breathe with the damn thing on anyway. And so, of course, I'm taking it off. And, you know, I've got all sorts of story, you know, some meaning that I've created there. Um, but I think that for me, um, at, at least today, um, what I'm taking is that, is that I want the opportunity to keep as many people safe as possible. And even at an ideal situation where we get the 80 or 90% of the folks vaccinated, the vaccine's good for 95%. Um, and so there's still, you know, some, um, and I don't, uh, I've stopped studying um, um, epidemiology because A, I didn't know what I was talking about and B, it just makes me nervous. Um, and so it's like, I'm not sure that my wearing a mask um, in the circles that I, that I travel in really has much, much benefit, but where I've settled is exactly what you said, uh, is that, you know, when people look at me funny, um, um, are they wondering if I'm a Trumper or if I'm an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker, um, or are they genuinely worried about their health? And so for as long as people are looking at me funny, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. So it's easy enough for me to wear the mask. So for right now, I'm doing that. Um, but as you know, as others know, I walk on the beach a lot, and I will confess that when I'm on the beach, 
um, with my shoes off, walking out, you know, 20 feet out into the water. Um, I don't, I don't wear a mask out there. So, so there are times, but, but, I, but I think it's that wonderful thing of trying to figure out why are we doing it? What's the real motivation um, for that? And it's just a metaphor for so many other things in our lives. What am I really doing? Um, and, and especially, I think in our caretaker roles, you know, um, how much of our caretaking is, is um, uh, entwined with an agenda of our own about how we want to feel about what we're doing. Thank you. Neo, Reverend Neo. Um, Stephen, it, it occurred to me if uh, your, your talk is sort of like a jewel, we could turn it and look at another facet. And uh, I was uh, wondering about the point of view of, of um, that, that Buddha uh, made a, um, you know, a central fact of his insight was the absence of a self so-called. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, how do we look at your approach to suffering and joy and so forth? Yeah. Um, thank you. And, and um, I don't know how we all do, <laughs> um, um, but I know for me, when I hear that no self, what I, the way I'm able to um, um, work with that, resonate with that, understand it is no separate self. And so Thich Nhat Hanh and other people who use the, the expression interconnectedness of all beings. Um, and so I, I um, you know, like with the question that Max and I were just talking about, it's, it's um, the mask wearing or not is, is not just my personal decision, it's the connection between all of us. And so for me personally, I would take the mask off right now and never wear it again because uh, my ears hurt and I can't breathe. That's the story I have. Neither of those is actually true, but that's the story I have. Um, but when it comes to um, thinking about how I want to be in the world, um, I want to um, be part of a, a sangha, a community, a, a globe that cares for each other. And so if my wearing a mask um, will make other people more comfortable, I'm willing to do that for a while. And so I think that's the bigger principle as well, is that, is that try to spend less time thinking about me and what makes me safe, me comfortable, and more about um, the relational pieces of my life and my spiritual practice, um, which is how do we, you know, as, as bodhisattvas, um, how do we all get um, towards enlightenment and liberation um, together and not one at a time racing to the finish line to jump over? Uh, David. There we go, right? Yep, we got gotcha. you. Um, uh, Stephen's talk um, made me recall an incident of a couple of three weeks ago. And uh, Mio's comment just now about the place of the self within this context of joy and suffering sort of underscored that. And uh, what it was was... Um, uh, over the past few months, I've uh, been looking to see if I could make some new friends via um, online uh, apps in lieu of, you know, actually trying to go out through meetup groups or whatever to make new friends. And I <clears throat> had a brief um, text conversation with a person 
who uh, we shared several interests. And uh, I felt it was a very lively and entertaining, uh, informative, and uh, so on. And um, so it came to an end, the person sort of signed off. And I had this experience of, oh, well, that was really nice. I didn't know what it was developing into, if anything, but whatever it was, I Oh, we lost, David, we lost some of that. I don't know what happened to the connection. Right, as it was turning into something. That, that joy, that no, if it was going to develop into a French or right. I'm just enjoying no, we can't can't hear it, David. I'm sorry. I don't, what, I don't know what's going on, but and, uh, we missed um, a lot of I that. Mind. Is this any better? That's yes. better. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, um, maybe I've got a bad connection up here in my room. Um, this. Uh, uh, her uh -oh. <laughs> feeling of uh, pleasure came up and then it went away. And I thought to my, I didn't really, wasn't concerning my moment, that joyous moment stopped. And I, at that moment, I, I could feel within my body, mind, this, um, the feeling of suffering. It's like I had something that was good. Now it's gone. Mm -hmm. And the, the most interesting thing about the whole experience was in realizing that I was able to go, okay, it's all good. It was there. Now it's gone. Mm -hmm. And I think we go through that experience all the time. Phenomena arises and maybe it's a, a feeling of joy. Maybe it's a feeling of uh, pain. Maybe it's whatever. It's, it's a moment that arises and a moment that passes away. So to me, that was a very concrete experience of the lack of an abiding self. It was, an, it was a momentary instance that came up and then went away. Mm -hmm. So that to me is where is that interface, as it were, between um, this so-called self and phenomena. Mm -hmm. I was very happy to have that experience. Well, we missed because of the Zoom breaking up how that experience ended. So we've all made up we've all made up our own versions of how that ended for you. Um, well, it ended was the the uh, the person signed off with the text, and um, I I didn't know if we would reconnect. You know, apparently there's a certain etiquette when texting with unknown people that you don't want to be clamoring after them when 
you've the sort of message is there like, okay, it, this is over and done with. Mm -hmm. right? So, so I knew it was over. I, I was able to read between the lines <laughs> enough to know that that, that experience of a couple of long text sessions was over and may or may not come again. I couldn't concern myself with whether it mm -hmm. would come again or not. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's the opportunity, right? It's like, you get to say, well, I, you know, I had, I had some sort of even unspoken expectation about how this would go. And, and if it went that way, what kind of joy that would create for me. Um, and the fact is it went some other way and, you know, you're able to say, I'm glad I had that experience because I learned some things and, you know, had a couple of nice conversations and, um, and, you know, now I'm willing because it was a basic positive experience, even though it didn't end the way I wanted it to, I may try it again. And so, you know, we have that opportunity, as you say, it's, it's like, okay, so it didn't go, I didn't get to write the story. Um, but I do get to step back and say, you know what, the story didn't end the way I wanted it to, but the story was okay. I think the story is probably always okay. Yeah. We just may, may not be able to accept that a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the little boy said, Mommy, tell me that story again, but with a different ending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it may be time for tea and cookies. Well, how about uh, Ronson? One, one huh? final question there. Sure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that story, thank you, David, reminded me of how the elements we have. Are we going to focus on the joyous aspect of a phenomenon or the suffering aspect of a phenomenon? Um, and I think I have a tendency to look for the suffering aspect sometimes of a phenomenon uh, that didn't go as I had written it in my head. Um, because probably because I of my background, my family background, my dysfunctional family background, um, where things often didn't go the way that I wanted them to. And I become used to that kind of uh, interpretation of things. So I guess, thank you for reminding me, we have a choice oftentimes mm -hmm. in all situations. Real, there's some real suffering that's to be had out there ambiguous situations like that, you know, you have some choice, you know, mm -hmm. get positive energy, um, a standalone energy or a standalone situation. Maybe it's not, but mm -hmm. stay open to whatever it is to become. And I think it's ambiguity that sometimes is hard to accept. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You know, I think it's it's really important when we think about this idea of living with suffering and joy as as a balance um, that we not um, take it as one more opportunity to beat ourselves up. Um, I was reading about um, Steve Stuckey, who was the, the Abbott and Zen Center in the course of the last couple of weeks, thinking about this topic. And you know, by all accounts, when he got sick, he he decided to uh, soldier on in, in a beautiful, wonderful way. Um, but that he wasn't going to let suffering um, take away from his joy in teaching and being with other people. And I thought, damn, you know, if I get a bad cold, I want to be left alone and unplug my phone 
And so there's one more, you know, why can't I be a saint like him? Um, and, and so it's, it's, we are entitled to our experiences of fear and sorrow um, and anger. And, and then we get to, as you just said, um, we get to decide how to deal with those and what we're going to do and how long we're going to sit there and, and at what point we're going to reach out to other human beings. Um, but I just would hate for any of us to use the opportunity that we're not um, able to balance um, suffering and joy um, in some um, displayed kind of way um, as another opportunity to beat ourselves up. Because I think that's, that's really not what the practice is about. And that's not what the Buddhist teachings are about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people do things differently and they hold their feelings differently and, and, uh, and they've got different life experiences, as you just described. So, you know, we get, to, we get to be real with our feelings. Um, and then, as you say, we get to make a choice about at what point are they adaptive and helpful and at what point are they not adaptive anymore? And maybe we can move on through them, let some of them go. Thank you. Uh, I, I just wanted to add, uh, just to turn the, the gem once more. And um, as I see it, this issue of, uh, you know, self, no self, uh, as I understand Buddha's teaching, what he was saying or is saying is, people say there are the phenomena of our lives, there are our experiences, and then the assumption is there's a self. And Buddha's teaching is, no, the only self there is, is the phenomena of your life. Mm -hmm. There isn't some self in addition to that. And that to me is a, is a pretty potent meditation. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, uh, uh, Stephen Koshinsan, thank you so much for an edifying talk.